Hey, I wanted to welcome a new family to the church. Also, we don't usually do this. People don't like to be pointed out. Public meetings, uh, we do it occasionally. Anyway, uh, Andrew and Callie Meyer are here as a couple. So, Andrew and Callie have been with us a year or more, but they got hitched just earlier this month at a wedding I couldn't perform, but Kent Vincent did. Yeah. So, welcome back. Glad you're here. And I'm sure you had a good time. Back from the honeymoon, that's great. Hey, too, I'll just mention something before the message. Um, when you read in Scripture, you read an account more than once, a verse more than once. Uh, you'll see this in Proverbs sometimes. You'll see it in Psalms. Uh, God says that he tends to validate, verify, point things out of special attention uh, by repetition. So when God repeats something, our, eye, our ears should perk up. That's something that God wants to be speaking to us about. Uh, if you were here for the adult Sunday school this morning, you know that Bill Bider taught on the subject of hell, of eternal separation from God under God's just punishment. And Bill and I don't coordinate. Sunday school doesn't coordinate with the messages taught here, but that is in no small measure what we'll be talking about out of the text we're in this morning as well. So it gets my attention when I realize on the same morning, the Sunday school lesson and the message for this service is basically along the same line. I think God's saying, pay attention to this and perk up. So with that, uh, Genesis 18, you can look there if you want. I'm going to be in it for just a minute by way of introduction. There was a certain day in the life of the patriarch Abraham where it's a normal day for him, but it becomes very exceptional indeed because God shows up for lunch. And God, we assume the second member of the Trinity, uh, Jesus in the incarnation, but God the Son shows up and he looks just like a man. And two angels show up with him and they look just like men too. But Abraham calls him Lord and says, man, don't pass by, stay, sit under this tree, let me give you a feast. And he does. And in the context of that meal, there's a lot of great lessons in there, but, but God has come down to tell Abraham, uh, my friend, you're going to have a baby boy by Sarah within the next year. So that promise that I made to you of a son, it's going to occur, and it's going to occur in the next year. And there, of course, they're old at this point, but God says, nope, count on it. Next year, Sarah will have a little baby boy. But as God and the angels are leaving, God says, you know, we're up to something down here besides this lovely lunch with our friend Abraham. Uh, because my angels are on a mission. And so he tells Abraham what's going on. And he tells Abraham, my two angelic visitors, they're going down to the cities of the plain. They're going down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And God doesn't need to do this, but of course the fact that he does tells us God's very careful about verifying the way things really are. So he says, they're going to go down, they're going to see if these cities are truly as wicked as we've heard. Again, God knows all things. He doesn't need to do that, but it shows the care with which he's giving people before judgment. So those angels are going to go down. And so Abraham's aware. And, you know, some texts in Scripture you infer a little bit because the text says something, but you're not necessarily entirely sure what it means. But Abraham gets into a bargaining conversation with God. And what he's doing is he's trying uh, at least one of two things. The, the strong inference would be one of these two things. He's trying to mitigate God's judgment. And he's either doing it 
for the benefit of his nephew Lot and Lot's family who live in Sodom, and Abram knows this, he's trying to get them off the hook so they won't be subject to God's judgment, or Abram's actually hoping that God won't judge the cities of the plains at all. Now I'll read a text here from it, part of the text of what Abraham says in regards to God. Uh, but when he's bargaining, he's going down to a number that I assume, I infer, he thinks there's at least this many righteous in these cities. So that if God agrees not to judge the cities of the plain for the sake of ten righteous, I think Abraham thinks there will be no judgment at all. There's got to be at least ten. I think that's the deal, because he starts at 50. So Abram's bargaining with God is predicated on something that he knows. So clearly, he has a desire that judgment be withheld or not simply brought about, at least on Lot, maybe on all of them, but he also knows something about God, and that's why he can approach God with this bargaining. You see this in verses 23 through 25, Genesis 18. Uh, Abram drew near, and he said, "'Hey, Lord, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked?' Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. In other words, Abram talking to God, this whole bargaining thing is predicated on Abram's knowledge that God can never do anything that's less than truly just and right. So he's not calling God's character into question. He's saying, we can count on this. You can't do anything that's less than justice. What does Scripture have to say about who's righteous and who's wicked? Because this is bringing up that whole thing. I'm looking for the righteous. I'm looking for the wicked. What can the righteous expect from God... And what should the wicked expect from God? That passage certainly brings that up. Second Peter brings up that same passage again related to the certainty of God's judgment. God's conversation with Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which, as you know the story, they are destroyed, brings up one of the truly great challenges in Scripture, which is wrapping our minds around God's judgment on those he calls the wicked. Bill talked about this this morning by the way, if you're not coming to those Sunday school classes, if you can't make it time-wise, one, I would encourage you to come if you can. There's great information. If you miss them, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It'll be streaming online by Tuesday or Wednesday this week, I believe, because he deals with that same thing. And guys, this notion of what do I do with the concept of God's righteous judgment on the wicked is it's, I don't think it's so much an intellectual challenge, even for Christians. I think it's a visceral challenge. I think it's a gut challenge. I think it's an emotional challenge. Because as you think of eternal judgment and torment on someone you know, and you think that could be me, what would that be like? Uh, it's a gut check. And you know, you read in Jesus, and I think appropriately so. It's a rock that some, some Christians don't get around. You know, Bill, Bill pointed out on surveys, not all who claim evangelical faith in Jesus Christ believe in hell. There's a reason for that. It's not intellectual, it's emotional. Some people say, well, there's everybody, everybody goes to heaven. Uh, the book came out, Rob Bell, uh, Love Wins. Nobody goes to hell. Why do people come up with that when the Scripture is very clear about a number of things 
including this? Well, it's because emotionally. So as we talk about this this morning, uh, I want to acknowledge, and guys, I acknowledge for myself, I, I, uh, this is hard to get around. You know, when you think of people you know that wouldn't be with Christ in heaven, but in hell under God's judgment, that's, that's a tough concept. Make it personal. That's a tough concept. That's what Scripture is talking about here, and that's what we'll see this morning. Last week in the first half of Psalm 1, we saw the happy, blessed person who rejects the counsel of the wicked. In fact, I'll read those verses here in just a second. But his life was characterized by, you remember we said, the rejection of some things, the life of the world basically, and the embrace of, you remember singularly we said the only thing that qualifies the righteous here, he embraces God's word. He has a relationship with God because he embraces, he delights in, he meditates in God's word day and night. So listen to this from Psalm 1, and then we'll get into the rest of Psalm 1, the second half of that, which deals with an entirely different category. So blessed is the man, blessed, happy, oh how happy, oh how good is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. You remember that that progression? His delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He mutters about it. He memorizes it. He makes it his own. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. That tree, it's always yielding fruit seasonally when it's supposed to. Its leaf never withers. It's always got that water. And all that he does, he prospers. So the beginning half of Psalm 1, you remember we said this is, is intentionally, it's an introduction to the rest of the book. So it's treating some very key themes that you'll see throughout the rest of the book of Psalms. It's blessed and happy on one hand. This morning the tables are turned dramatically when the psalmist describes the life of the wicked in the second half of this introductory psalm to the book of Psalms. So this song that introduces the rest of the book deals with who is righteous, who is righteous and what should they expect? Who is unrighteous and what should they expect? So turning to Psalm 1, verses 4 through 6, I'll read from the ESV. In contrast to the happy, blessed, righteous people of God in the first half, here's the second half, verse 4, the wicked are not so. So they're not righteous, they're not vital spiritually, and they're not prosperous. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord, Yahweh, knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. Verses 4 through 6, primarily speaking of the wicked, their way of life, and most importantly, the end of the way of the wicked, the end of the life of the of the wicked. In verse 1, we were introduced to the wicked, the counsel of the wicked, and it was the first phrase, first descriptive term in a, an unholy trinity, the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. And the second half of this song this morning, we see the end of that group. Now, guys, when you, in fact, if I say wicked, I, I don't know how that strikes you, you know, the term wicked. If you, is that a term we even use? Uh, I was at a conference years ago with Kath and another city, large city, and, and one of the speakers is up there with great emotion. He talks about this wicked city. And I thought, wow, that's kind of emotional. That's kind of out there. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Wicked is not a term we use much. 
It's a big term in the Scripture, and so we need to define a little bit about what God's talking about. Wicked in the Hebrew here in our text is rashah. It means wrong, disturb, violate, condemn, make trouble. To be wicked is to be guilty. It is to be ungodly. I think the King James is the only relatively modern English translation that translates the term wicked as ungodly. If you read King James, it doesn't say wicked, it says ungodly. Wickedness, this concept of wickedness, which we'll flesh out more, just the concept of of wicked, it's used 82 times in Psalms, this one word, it's used 78 times in Proverbs. Now, it's not used very often in the rest of the Old Testament, but in the books of wisdom, the wisdom literature, the notion of the wicked is a big, big theme. God speaks to it over and over again. And this is the thing about the term and the concept behind the term. Scripturally, biblically, it really has two inferences. And I think generally in our minds, we only take into account one. So the first instance of the use or the meaning or the inference of the term wicked has to do with wicked as an action, wicked as something we do. And Scripture certainly speaks of wickedness in that sense. I'll give you some examples. By the way, I hope you have a study sheet. To lie about others in order to cause them harm is wicked, Exodus 23.1. By the way, what happened to Jesus? People lied about him. They bore false witness to accuse the innocent. The rebellion of Dathan and Abiram against Moses was wicked, number 16.26. The rebellion of the earth against Jesus and the Creator, guys, is wicked wicked murder is wicked numbers 35 31 and by the way in these contexts the same term wicked it's the term being used about all of these actions violence against others without cause is wicked psalm 11 verse 5 abusing the generosity of others is wicked psalm 37 21 treachery against god from those in covenant with him is wicked nehemiah 9 so So there is an important sense in which, biblically, when God talks about wicked or wickedness, it's talking about wickedness as something we do. An act is wicked. That's one way we see it. The danger of seeing the wicked only through this lens is that we won't see wickedness in all the ways God does. And in fact, I would say we don't understand wickedness in the primary sense in which it's used in Scripture and certainly in Psalm 1. If I understand wickedness only as aspects of gross immorality or violence, then the wicked for me will likely be restricted to people I read about online, people who live somewhere else. In this sense, most of us are unlikely to say, I know someone who is wicked. Because we say, well, Hitler was wicked, Stalin and Mao, mass murderers. Now, certainly, wicked applies to them as actions that are wicked, but it can't be restricted, excuse me, to that. This is from Alan Ross in his commentary on someone. And guys, this is the concept we need to get. If we don't get this, we don't understand what God is saying. We don't understand the biblical view of ungodliness, of wickedness, if we don't get this version of it. Not as wicked actions, but wickedness as a state of being. 
Wickedness is a state of existence. This is the bigger issue. This is what he says in part. We may have the impression that the passage, so Psalm 1, is only referring to those unbelievers who are, are, excuse me, who are particularly evil and dangerous and not calling the unbelieving relative or friend the wicked. That is, Ross points out, I say, well, my friends aren't wicked. My relatives aren't wicked. The word basically describes the people who are not members of the covenant, not believers, therefore ungodly. The main idea is that since they have not come to faith in the Lord and found forgiveness of their sins, they stand condemned as guilty and deserving the punishment of God. Some of these, and this is where most of us live, some of these people may seem to us to be good people. But as far as God is concerned, they are wicked because they have rejected their Creator and chosen to live in violation of His laws and refuse His provision of salvation. That last one, of course, especially in our day, being key. They are guilty of sin before God and stand condemned. Now, guys, that's wickedness as a state of existence. That's not what I'm doing as an act of wickedness. This is who I am in and of myself. Uh, Psalm 10 verse 4 is an example of this. This is not the most profound or strongest. There's others like this. Uh, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, doesn't seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. In other words, I... I, don't, I not only don't give God the time of day, I live and I act as if God isn't a thing. God isn't an issue. God isn't important enough for me to even consider or think about the thought of the wicked. No relationship with God. Wicked in this sense is every self-professed atheist, every agnostic, every person who has heard the gospel and said no thank you to God's provision of salvation in Christ. Every religious person attempting to merit God's favor by their own works of righteousness, everyone attempting to come to God on their own terms. In other words, wickedness as a state of being is not only those who reject the concept of God entirely, God's not a thing, I don't worry about him, to the ultra-religious who says there is a God and I'm working my way to him, neither one of which represent godliness or faith according to the scriptures. Wicked as a state of being applies to all who refuse to humble themselves before God, repent of their sins, and entrust their souls to God's saving work in Jesus Christ. Now you might say, hold on, Uh, Jesus was uh, 2,000 years ago, Psalms are, let's just say, from 1,000 B.C. Uh, Nobody could believe in Jesus when these were written, and I, I would agree with you, Jesus by name. However, the psalmist knew something that you and I do too. So in Genesis 15, God shows up, another conversation with Abraham, and God makes some promises to Abraham. And Genesis 15, 6 is the first, and it's the key verse on justification in any time, in any way. It's the first. It's the one that counts. It's the one that's quoted by Paul in Romans. It's quoted by James. So God says something to Abraham, and the text says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness what was abraham before faith and righteousness he was wicked and ungodly 
And you remember the text in Old Testament and New Testament points out Abram was an idolater among idolaters. And God singled him out and said, I'm going to start over just like he started over with Noah. So even in the days in which the Psalms were being written, it was understood we gain right status with God. We move from the wicked and the ungodly to God's own people by God's grace through faith. It was the same in the Old Testament as it is today. The content of the knowledge and the promises and the revelation of God to us today is complete because we live in the age after Jesus' incarnation. But the method of salvation, righteousness, justification in the Old Testament was the same as for us. Righteousness was brought about through God's grace by faith. That's exactly what you see in the case of Abram. And David and the writers of the Psalms knew that. Righteousness was not produced by righteous acts they committed. It was by faith in God's grace. The wicked, the ungodly, don't live by faith in God, and therefore nothing they do ever pleases God. That sounds radical, doesn't it? Do you remember where that comes from, though? That's not Mike's opinion. Hebrews eleven six, Without faith, it is impossible to please God because those who come to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. You cannot please God apart from faith. And not just that there is a God, that there's the God whom Jesus has perfectly represented and spoken of and revealed. Guys, anything short of that cannot, it never does, it never pleases God. And those outside, to Ross's point, those outside of covenant inclusion with God, whether it's the Old Testament or the New, the age of the church, no one outside that covenant group pleases God. It's an impossibility. They may sin more or less. Their lives may be more or less grievous to a perfectly holy God, but nothing they do ever pleases God if it's not born of faith. So who's the wicked? Guys, everybody's the wicked. Everyone's the ungodly that Psalm 1 is describing unless and until they come to saving faith by God's grace. Now, you know, when Jesus came to the Jews, uh, you think of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you know something... They said, sort of to themselves, right? They said, we're all that, and you're not. And so, you know, you think of Jesus' lunches with one of the Pharisees, and the Pharisee says to himself, if this guy was really a prophet, he'd know that woman's a sinner. I'm righteous. That person's a sinner. And that's sort of the mindset you saw among the religious upper crust in Jesus' day. Now, Scripture allows absolutely none of that for us if we read our Bibles. And so I'm bringing this in as a qualification for attitude. If you say, I'm a Christian, I believed in Jesus, I'm righteous, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Great. If I take that as an attitude and say, and I'm better than those wicked ungodly, then you've missed the mark. We've missed the mark. Uh, what were we before conversion we were the wicked. We were the ungodly 
Who is Jesus saving? The wicked and the ungodly. Now, this isn't my opinion. You guys know this. Romans 3, how many are righteous before God? Do the count. Sum it up. Doesn't take long. None. How many? Oh, he says, not one. Ephesians 2 is even, to me, more pointed. And you remember, uh, Paul, Mark quoted a verse from Ephesians 1. You know, you were set apart from the foundations of the world before the foundations of the world because God is kind and he's pouring out his mercy and his grace on you. And you're a display of God's glorious kindness. Isn't that great? Do you get to Ephesians 2, Paul speaking to the same group. And he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You know, we're not supposed to walk in the way of sinners. Well, guess what we were doing? We were walking in the way of sinners, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. Now that's written to believers. You were children of wrath. You were born and you raised and you grew up under God's righteous wrath. How does anyone move from the status of the wicked to the status of the righteous? Now we don't do that on our own. That's the, the gospel is all about. You and I can't do that. You know, Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, while we were still weak, and this means spiritually weak, we don't have any of the strength, we don't have any power to do what we need to do for ourselves. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for who? Christ died for the ungodly. That's the people in Psalm 1. That's you and me before conversion. Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, we were the people of Psalm 1, guys. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. That was our history. Back to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. You and I can't boast. You know, let, let him who boasts, Jeremiah 9, and I think uh, 1 Corinthians 1 maybe, let him who boasts, boasts in this that he knows and understands that I am God and I delight in these things, loving kindness, and I'll forget the rest of the verse, but... That's the thing you boast. You don't boast in your own righteousness. We boast in God. God is our boast. Whether it's about salvation or righteousness or anything else, this doesn't set us up to look down our nose at anyone. There's no self-congratulation. When we were ungodly, when we were wicked, Christ died for us. And our salvation is by God's grace through faith, which we don't produce. It's the gift of God. No one can boast. No one can boast. Wickedness as a state of being applies to all of us unless and until we're born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Unless and until we exchange our ungodliness for Christ's righteousness. Unless and until we move from the kingdom of darkness into Christ's kingdom by faith in Jesus' saving work on our behalf. That's a big deal. Last week, we said that only God can make a tree. Well, only God can take ungodly, wicked sinners and turn them into saints and children of God. That is the work of God. Salvation is of the Lord. We don't produce it. We don't merit it. We just receive it. We're on the receiving end. That transformation occurs by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Now, 
Back to the text. So the wicked. Yes, wickedness is, is things we do. But more profoundly and more to the point, wickedness is a state of existence. That covers everyone. Everyone outside of Christ is the wicked and the ungodly, by definition from Scripture. Now, why does he compare the wicked to chaff? Do you guys all know what chaff is? Because we, we, we live in, a, if you have an ag background, you know, think of, think of this. You and I, we live in the post-industrial age, right? We live in the communication technological age, right? But guys, from about 1850 or so back, the way people lived was about the same for millennia until the Industrial Revolution. So back in the day, most people lived on farms. They were agrarian, right? They had, they had crops, they had animals. So back in the day, when your, let's call it a wheat crop, when your wheat crop came up and it's ready to harvest, you get all the, the sons and daughters, you might get the neighbors, you get out there with your scythes, your sharpened curved knives or two-handled ones, and you cut that grain down, you bunch it up, you let it dry thoroughly, and then you would take those stalks of grain usually to a hilltop, flat area on a hilltop, because generally, convection, breezes go up hills. Breezes go uphill. If there's going to be a breeze, it's going to be on top of the hill. So you'd take that, you'd break off the grains of head, and you'd lay out, take the stalks away, you'd lay out those broken grains of head on a flat area, sort of round, and then you would take donkeys, mules, cattle, oxen, typically pulling a heavy wooden or metal sled, and you'd have your critter just walk in circles around that grain. Guys, this is the way they did it for millennia. George Washington did this. He revolutionized the way it was done. You can look at that at Mount Vernon. But this is the way it was done. So what you would have, so there, here were the grains of, he, the heads of grain, and now they've been trampled. And guys, this is called, do you know what this is called? This is called threshing. And what happens is, as those animals walk over that, and that heavy weight pounds it, it breaks the husk that's over the kernel of wheat. So the husk is broken. The shell that's over the nutritious berry is broken. And so what you'd have is a, a pile of berries and husks. And so you would take your shovels, you'd put it under there, and you'd throw the mess up in the air. And you do this over and over and over again. And the breeze would come along as that grain is airborne. The heavy seeds, the heavy berries, they fall right back down. But the breeze, the husks, the chaff, it's just, if you've seen it, it's small, it's light, you can sort of see through it. It's, it's insubstantial. It's so light that the breeze just blows it away. And then the farmer would take, what he ends up with is a pile of wheat berries, and he takes those wheat berries, that wheat that he's going to eat, he takes it into his barn and he stores it. And Psalm 1 says the wicked are the chaff. Oh, and that's called winnowing. When you throw it up in the air, the wind takes it away. That's called winnowing. So Psalm 1, God says the wicked are like the chaff that that farmer throws up in the air and the farmer's just clearing the chaff out of the way. It's useless. The chaff has no use whatsoever when God compares the wicked to chaff he says he's indicating the wicked lack any spiritual life or spiritual vitality the wicked are of no ultimate and this is ultimate 
positive value in God's work to honor himself and to bless others in eternal ways. This doesn't say that the wicked on earth can't do good things to other people on the earth that are beneficial. The wicked can have businesses. They can employ people. They can build roads and bridges. But there's no eternal value to what they're doing. There's no ultimate value in what they're doing. So the useful grain is brought in. The chaff which is useless is blown away. When God compares the wicked to the chaff, he's saying they have no standing. You remember the, the language of the text is there's no standing. They have no standing among the righteous. They can't exist there. Psalm 1 shows us that in the end, in the only ways that ultimately matter, the world is divided by only two kinds of people. We need to remember this. It's not political parties. It's not black and white. It's not oppressed and oppressor. It's not men and women. It's not boys and girls. It's not Jews and Gentiles. The only two categories in the world that matter are the righteous and the wicked. And everyone you see, know, interact with on planet Earth, they're in one group or the other. This is a huge and helpful reminder to me. Everyone you interact with, when you leave here today, if you pump gas at the gas station, if you go to the grocery store, if you interact with family members or friends later on, they're in one of these camps or the other. They're among the wicked or they're among the righteous. Everyone you meet. C.S. Lewis says something that's always been helpful to me. He said, no one has met a mere mortal. And his thought was that it has to do with ultimate ends. He said, if you could see the glory of the righteous person in front of you, what their glory will look like in eternity future, he said their glory would be so transcendent you would want to bow down and worship them. But he said the flip side is this, if you could see the horror to which that person in front of you who is unredeemed, who remains among the wicked, who's under God's eternal judgment, if you could see the horror that that person will be in eternity, you would draw back in horror at their status. That's the thought. Eternal glory or eternal judgment. So his point, you've never met a mere mortal. We are dealing with people every day in one of two groups. They're either among the righteous or they're among the wicked. So at this level, Psalm 1, guys, it's nothing more or less than the gospel, right? This is the message of the gospel, is it not? And that's how Psalms begins. We've got a problem. We're wicked. We're sinners. We're ungodly. And thank God, this is just like going through Romans, isn't it? And thank God God's done something about it that we couldn't do for ourselves. And Jesus died for the ungodly. Jesus died for me. Amen. And it's brought about, you think of Romans 4 and 5, it's brought about by faith. Nothing we do. God's provided it. It's received in the arms of faith. John 3.36, let me bring this up too. John's gospel is written to tell people, this is who Jesus is, this is what he did. Believe in him and you'll live forever. John 20, 30 or 31. It's the reason that gospel is written. It's different. It's distinct than the other three, the synoptics. It's different. John 3.16, you know, I'm told the most famous verse in all the Bible, you know, God so loves the world, sends his only begotten son, so that anyone who believes in him won't perish but live forever. Wow, great. Go to the end of that same chapter. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. That's the good news. 
Whoever does not obey the Son, and guys, obedience to the Son in John and in Romans is faith. It's belief. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, and this is the key phrase, the wrath of God remains on him. It's not that it came on him suddenly. It's that he was born separated from God. He's lived separated from God. He dies separated from God. He remains under God's righteous judgment. He remains there. We're born there. We are among the ungodly and the wicked, headed for judgment unless and until there's that point of new birth. There's faith in God and in Christ and his provision for our sin. We are all, back to our introduction, we are all living in Sodom. We're all just like Lot. We're living in a city condemned to destruction. And unless and until we flee that city through faith, we remain under the condemnation of the city that we inhabit as our own. This song winds down on a note of judgment. We're talking about that all along. Most people assume, as I do, that this is talking about final judgment. Verse 5, the wicked won't stand in the judgment. It's time to judge. The wicked can't stand. They can't occupy that space. Sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There's no place for the wicked in the midst of the righteous. Again, this is in eternity. Verse 6, the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked in their ways will all end at the judgment of God. That's eternal separation. Psalm 73 um, is a psalm of Asaph, and Asaph tells us a story of his experience, and real briefly it's this. Asaph says, you know, I looked around, and I've seen, I know all these wicked, ungodly people. They're not in covenant. They're not in a faithful relationship with God. But I looked at their life, and I said, man, you know what? They're healthy. They're wealthy. Their kids are all good-looking and smart. Their cattle all bear without any trouble. They just have this blessed life. And I'm looking at my life saying, man, that." It's better than mine, and they're the unrighteous. And it says in his mind, he, he got so frustrated, he said, I was like a beast before God. It's just like, you, you know, a snarling beast. I'm unhappy, I'm mad. And he says, until I came into God's presence. And he says, and then I saw. And basically he says, then I saw their end. And he said, their end is slippery places. And basically all the health and the wealth they enjoyed in life, it all evaporates, it's all gone at death. Their end is the thing that he was talking about. Now I get it, he says. You can be wicked and ungodly in this world. You can be millionaires and billionaires. You can have everything the world has to offer. And then you can go to hell forever, born separated from God, lived separated from God, died separated from God, separated from God forever that is the end of the wicked no matter what their life on earth looked like no matter how good or bad it was the wicked in life may be popular powerful influential they may enjoy health and wealth and the common graces which i think is no small thing guys god's common grace to us is incredible just to, to draw breath and see sunrises and sunsets and eat good food and have friendships with others, God's common grace is remarkable. They can experience all of that, but their end is not so. They don't stand with the righteous in the end. There's no ambiguity. By the way, this is why Matthew 3, verse 12, you'll also see this in Luke's gospel, 
when John the Baptist, on the front end of Jesus appearing to Judah in Israel, on the front end, when John the Baptist speaks of Jesus, Messiah and Savior, he says in part this, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Just like that Psalm 1, they say Jesus is the farmer and he's winnowing. And he's going to keep the grain, but the chaff is going to be burned up. You see the same thing in Revelation 21.8. This final judgment comes up in Revelation 20, but you see it reiterated in Revelation 21.8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, we could group them and say the wicked and the ungodly, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Of the wicked, Jesus says, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. I don't know you, Jesus says, of the wicked. What does he say of the righteous? John 10, 14, I know my own, and my own know me. And this is relationship. By the way, in the Hebrew, the word to know, that's the same as Adam knew Eve. That's the same as sex. It's personal It's personal association and identification. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord's connected to the righteous and the life of the righteous and the way of the righteous. He's not connected. He doesn't know the way of the wicked. The righteous are known by God because they're in right relationship with him through Christ and will abide with Christ forever like grain taken into the barn. Psalm 1's an important introduction to the rest of the book of Psalms, and you've got the two key, key, key thoughts. The righteous, there are righteous, and there are wicked. The righteous enjoy faith, fruitfulness, and vitality in this life, and they enjoy God's blessing and presence forever. They're in relationship. The wicked may prosper in this life, but they have nothing to expect going forward except the righteous judgment of God. This psalm should make us tremblingly fearfully thankful for the salvation we enjoy in Christ. It should motivate us to be prayerfully, humbly, faithfully part of the process of God calling ungodly people like us into his blessing and presence through faith in Christ. should motivate us in the gospel. Uh, Stand with me if you would. and We're doing something a little different after the messages this time. We're not reading a text of Scripture. We are rather reading together a prayer that comes from the text we've just read. This is on your study sheet. And by the way, the reason this is on your study sheet is so you can read this before. We don't believe in simply having people mimic words because they're on a screen in front of you. Paul talks about praying and singing with understanding. So if this applies to you, please pray with me this from our psalm this morning. Father, thank you for transferring us from death to life, from strangers to children, from among the wicked to the righteous, through the atoning work of Jesus. Please glorify yourself by building your church through our faithful proclamation of the gospel in calling those around us to repentance and life 